0: From the EPR Creations studio, this is Jason Staples, bringing you Unconquered with Doc Staples. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by EPR Creations, by Lewis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, by Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, by Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and by my newest advertising partner, Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage. As always, informations in the show notes let them know you heard about him from the Unconquered podcast with Doc Staples. Hey everybody, since I put a last episode out, there's been a whole lot that's going on. I'm actually going to be moving pretty fast today because uh I've actually got to get on the road in a few minutes. if I'm not able to finish this up, uh well, I'm going to have to do this with my road setup and uh that'll you'll notice that the that the that the uh audio changes mid episode if that's what has happened, but Hopefully I can finish this before all that goes down. In any case, since I last put out an episode, a few guys, a few additional guys uh, were able to transfer in. Uh, And of course the additional signing on the second signing day, what used to be the true national signing day now, pretty much a little bit of a bummer in terms of uh, there being no excitement about college football at that time of year. But uh Yeah. So first couple of them uh, were guys that I discussed a little bit because they were already on campus and expected to join the class when I did record the last episode. And that's Roy Dell Williams and Richie Leonard Uh, Williams from uh, the running back from Alabama. Richie Leonard, the fourth, the offensive guard from Florida also might be able to play some center if need be. But um, but those guys added on to uh, added into the transfer class. Also, uh, Sean Murphy, the linebacker from Alabama. And then Jacob Rizzi, the uh, can play all five offensive line spots, uh, the transfer from Harvard. So, uh, added those guys and then Amari Williams on signing day. So, just briefly going through those, and also one departure, uh, that of Joshua Burrell, uh, the athlete wide receiver running back who never really found a home at a spot. Once, once the talent level was upgraded on the roster, really, really great guy, uh, and a guy that is going to be able to graduate and then move on with a couple of years to play. And hopefully he's able to do really well elsewhere. And he's one of those guys that, you know, down the line, if, if he wants to come back in as a grad assistant or, you know, strength coach type guy, he's a guy you want in your program, but in any case, just, uh, wasn't really a spot for him in terms of, of playing time and understand why he would, why he would depart now going through those players, uh, just briefly Roy Dell Williams, I think, and, and part of the reason that I, I took a little bit longer to get this one out is I actually was a guest on another podcast and went through a lot of this. I mean, we went through, it was like an hour and a half episode, uh, on that, where I ended up doing that, that interview and we talked through all these players already. So, uh, it's one of those things where it sort of factored in as though I had already done it in my own head. Just sort of realized like, oh, I didn't actually post my own podcast episode on those things. In any case, um, Roy Dell Williams, uh, what I said then is is what uh, I stand by on this. Williams is a really good fit for Norvell's offense because of essentially what they needed at the at the running back position. They've already gotten to Feely, They've got that Swiss Army knife. Jalen Lucas, kind of a similar, more speed based Swiss Army knife. For that tailback position, the three position when they line that up in the backfield, a guy who can line up out wide in the slot in the backfield can be a solid runner, but not a true between the tackles grinder and, you know, every down back that uh, that really is something that they they didn't have anybody proven to bring back after with the departure Benson last year. And frankly, last year they they missed Trayshawn Ward quite a bit in that role, just because of the kind of runner that he was—a you know heavy vision guy, uh, more quick than fast guy that that you know is one cut and find that space. And honestly, Roy D. Williams, my my scouting report on him, my read on him is he's basically a Trayshawn Ward with another twenty five pounds. So you feel like you really upgraded there at the running back position with the guy who can fit extremely well in Mike Norvell's offense and what they want to do as a runner. And the other thing is that they, they needed a guy who could help bridge the gap to the talent that they just brought in. And that's Cam Davis uh, and Cameron Davis. I mean, if you've looked at some of the pictures that have been posted since he's been on campus, you know, stuff from tour of duty and all that, there's one picture from tour of duty that looks for all the world. It looks like he's Herschel Walker. Uh, I mean, just, there's some guys who, you know, they step off the step out of the car when they arrive on campus first day as a freshman, and they just look different. And that's one of those guys that looks different. And as I passed along a couple months ago, you know, one of my buddies who coached against him in high school texted me and said, that dude's going to be instant impact at Florida state. When Rodney transferred, for example, no concerns because that guy's going to be better than Rodney Hill from day one. And Hill's a good player. I mean, you you all know from listening to this show that I liked Rodney Hill a lot. Still do. I think he's a good back. But Cam Davis is a more talented player and a better, better player and ultimately a better fit for especially the bigger back role in Norvell's offense. And they needed a guy who could come in especially early in the year and shoulder a lot of that load while Davis is sort of getting his feet on the ground, getting his feet wet. And ideally, what you what you can do is kind of have Roydell Williams take the majority of that load early in the season. And then as the season goes, if Cam Davis starts to get comfortable, maybe he starts taking some more of those carries. But Williams gives you a really strong veteran presence who can do a lot. And uh, like I mentioned on the last episode, before he actually officially joined the class, the, the word out of Alabama is he's also an absolute terror on special teams, just a great special teams player. So that also really helps. And that'll probably end up being a way that he finds himself on an NFL roster when it all comes down to it. Uh, So Roy Dell Williams, a really good ad. Richie Leonard uh, is a guy that when I first looked at it and I I first looked at him as a a possibility, I was a little surprised that he might be a take. And then I started looking at some of the Florida offensive line uh, footage and went, yeah, he was the best guy in their offensive line. So it makes sense to go ahead and take that guy. And he's a guy that I think is a plug-and-play starter for Florida State. Um, I'm not sure Terrence Ferguson is, but I do think Richie Leonard is. And I think he's a guy that can really help stabilize you inside. I think he's an upgrade over what you had at, at, as your starting guards last year. Uh, I, I think once he gets situated and gets settled, he's going to be one of those guys. He'll probably lead the offensive line in snaps at guard, la- at guard next year just a guy that that I think is, is pretty solid. Uh, Sean Murphy. Didn't haven't hadn't discussed him at all because aside from the guest appearance, uh, just because I he, he was not on the radar when I when I last recorded. But Murphy is a guy that I've got some questions about how well he moves laterally. I mean, he's he, he seems in what I've seen of him so far to be a pretty linear guy. Uh, he's got some legit downhill burst and, and straight speed. He can close on guys. The kind of body that Florida State hasn't had at linebacker all that often in recent years, uh, you know, a true Alabama body at linebacker. But I, I do, you know, he, he. I think he's closer to a, uh, to a Tatum Bethune in terms of the style and the, the strengths that he brings to the table than he is to a, Uh, Deloach, for example. Now, you know, he's not 205 pounds like Deloach. So that's a that's a that's a plus on its own. But he isn't I don't think a guy that you can just put out there and feel like he's a true three down backer. And he can cover, you know, slots or, you know, cover any tight end. So I don't think he's quite that. But I do think he's a little bit more of a thumper and brings some some good things to the table certainly fills out that room. Uh, at, at linebacker and gives you another quality body and right now they just need to throw bodies at that position because even with DJ Lundy back you know basically after that you've got Blake Nicholson Justin Cryer Omar Graham who you know we'll see what he looks like now that he's gotten that postseason surgery and you know can get healthy again but then you're down to DeMarco Ward you know Tamir Hickman Collins a freshman and Jaden Parrish a freshman I mean there's Not a ton of experience and, you know, some of the bodies there are not as developed at this stage of their career. You know, these these are young guys and Murphy brings a guy that, you know, he's been in a top level, high accountability program as a true, you know, four, four or five star type recruit with, with a big time body. It's got good length, good bulk. Again, I don't think he's quite as, uh, as, as mobile side to side as, as you know, is ideal, but he does, I think, fit a lot of what Randy Shannon and and Fuller really like in a backer in terms of being able to play in the phone booth, the the quickness in terms of being able to trigger quickly, all of that. I do think that showed up some on the Alabama tape. And when it all comes down to it, I'm going to defer to Nick Saban on, on uh, linebacker evaluation and as often as not. So another good addition and a guy who I think raises the floor of your roster significantly. Uh Then, obviously, along with that, Sean, Mer- uh, uh, along with that, Amari Williams, the edge uh player coming in, at least that's the plan is, is that he's at edge, played some edge, you know, outside linebacker in high school, along with wide receiver, uh, which tells you what kind of athlete he is. Real question with him, he's about 210, 215 pounds. How quickly can he add weight? How quickly can he get the bulk necessary to grow into the kind of position that you're wanting him to at this level. Uh, Cause I don't think he's got the burst and all of that, where if it doesn't work out at edge, you can just kind of flip him over and go, well, I guess, you know, play him at wide receiver. Cause that's where he was pretty good in high school too. I don't think you can quite do that. Uh, now he is one of those guys that could theoretically, if he doesn't put on quite enough to be an edge, he could become a, you know, a tight end type prospect but i think the expectation is that he can actually put that weight on and become a legit prospect at the edge spot and i do think that's that's plausible i think that's if not plausible or if not if not uh just plausible i think it it's it's likely that this is a guy that's going to be able to carry 245 250 well pretty quickly but he's not a guy that's an immediate impact guy you know you're you're going to kind of expect him to be a year 2 year 3 probably year 3 guy before he does a ton uh Because again, he's just not, that's not been his thing, but you're bringing in, essentially, you're trying to bring in a guy that that, that can be a Patrick Payton in two to three years. That's what you're hoping. And he's, he's, he's certainly got the, the pedigree. You never feel bad about taking a highly talented player whose dad played 10 years in the NFL. Those are guys who know what the work is like they, they they're they coming from a standpoint where you know dad knows how this is going to work you're going to have some family support there so that's another another positive the other guy is is jacob rizzi um i think he's a guy that it, it's going to be interesting because i think he can play all five positions and good for that guy i mean uh you know coming into tallahassee with the harvard degree you know he could hit the uh the life life win of uh harvard undergraduate degree and then uh I can't even finish this seriously, Harvard undergraduate degree, and then uh, finishing by finding, uh, the part, a life partner at, for, uh, from Florida state. Uh, you're doing pretty well, well with yourself, uh, son, being able to, uh, to, to do that, if, if that works out for you. So, um, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, um, Rizzy's a guy that, uh, you know, I think the interesting question is where he's going to settle. I think they're going to probably start him in the competition at center and see if he can be a guy at a little bit bigger body than Maurice Smith, if he can at least take some of those snaps, if not beat out Maurice Smith. I mean, they've tried to get a guy in to beat out Maurice Smith for three years, and Smith just keeps winning the job. But Rizzi's a guy that I think they're, they may start out there. If he doesn't work there, he could potentially be uh, further depth at, at tackle, and he certainly can play guard. The thing that, that he does is he helps you so that you're not completely screwed if one guy goes down for a couple games, and he's a guy that that allows you if you don't feel as comfortable about one spot to slide him into that spot. And I think he's going to be reliable. Uh, I do see some pretty good physical traits from him. He's not as quick as you know you'd really like, or as long as you'd really like uh, for a top level tackle, but he moves his feet very well and he's got some strength and definitely physical. The increase in, in, in level of play is going to be something he's going to have to deal with, but you feel pretty good about, about what you're bringing in there. Uh, yeah. So go ahead and take a quick break and then we'll be back with some of the other catching up to some of the other stuff that's happened since I last recorded. All right. Welcome back. So Florida State brought in as one of the other things that's happened since I last recorded, recorded uh, brought in Rick Stockstill to be the director for uh, of scouting for offense. Uh, this is a guy who not only former Florida State starting quarterback, but also a uh, a coach at Middle Tennessee State for quite a while, including a humiliating uh, win over Miami at Miami a couple of years ago, where they just. Shelled Miami with a bunch of uh, vertical routes. Uh, This is a guy who I think this makes a lot of sense for them. Uh, He's a he's worked as a recruiting coordinator in the southeast for both Clemson and for South Carolina. And then he's got a a solid pedigree as an offensive coordinator as well. So in addition to being in addition to, to taking five guys from the Alabama roster after turning down the Alabama job, uh, it appears that Mike Norvell might be starting up the uh, starting up as the successor to Nick Saban's uh, employment office for former head coaches. <laughs> and, and you know, the thing about bringing in a guy like Stockstill is you're bringing in a guy who has really experienced eyes and a guy who can uh with that experience and with the expertise that he brings and and there's a lot of synergy between what he did offensively and what Mike Norvell likes to do offensively, especially with a lot of the vertical passing game, you're bringing in a guy who can help you across the board. And one of the things that he's going to be able to do is he's going to help you in terms he's going to help your general manager help your scouting department for high school scouting and for scouting uh, in terms of the roster portal you know, for the transfer portal. That is all of that stuff in terms of roster stuff. But the other thing that I think you're basically able to get from him is some game planning help with some of your bigger games. So as director of scouting, essentially that allows him to, you know, technically that probably speaks more to a recruiting role, but I would anticipate that he's also going to have a heavy analyst role in terms of all this. And I got a bunch of questions about this uh, and I'll just go ahead and read through uh, a series of those and then... and. Sort of how i I respond to those, so one of those is you know what what do what do I think so what do you think he brings to the coaching staff that that really helps them and and first of all, I think he his familiarity with the sorts of things that Norvell likes to do offensively really help, and if you go back even just to the Miami game and what he was able to to bring to the table there, he's really good at detecting tendencies and scouting out you know, potential weaknesses in terms of mismatches to get advantageous mismatches with those tendencies and formation, those things, which is a lot of stuff that Norvell likes to do in order to get vertical cheap shots, basically. (laughs) And, you know, just a a solid set of eyes to help with that. Uh, And so then I got some other questions on this. So, you know, during the game, what, what are the analysts doing? Are they the guys that are the ones who call out, call out stuff, upstairs for the play callers that sort of thing how much input do they have in putting together the game plan so my answer to that first thing is that analysts are usually more limited than that you only have uh, nine or ten headsets i think it's ten headsets now uh i can't remember the the full number it might be what 13 they, they limited the number of headsets so that you can only have so many guys on there and, and they're trying to eliminate or to limit how many other non- on field staff actually have access to a headset so it's not normally the analysts that are doing that but what they are doing um is they're charting things they're looking for tendencies during the game uh a lot of a lot of things happen where you know they might come over and talk to another coach on the sideline or in the booth and and talk directly in that case and then that gets relayed another way but the more important thing for these kinds of analysts or directors of scouting that sort of thing is the role during the week and then during the off season these are guys that have, especially when you're, you're, you're experienced guys like Stockstill, these are guys that have a big hand in game planning. And I expect that Stockstill is going to have a pretty strong hand, a pretty strong influence on, say, the Miami, Clemson, and Florida games in terms of those game plans this year. And what you're doing there you is is you're, you're watching a ton of film, you're charting tendencies, you're noting weaknesses and strengths, you're observing personnel patterns, things like that all these sorts of things that can be taken advantage of and then how you can work with that given your own strengths and weaknesses and then what to avoid and when given your own strengths and weaknesses. Essentially what you're doing at that stage in the in the planning process is you're building out a preliminary game plan with some call sheet stuff based on what your offense and defense do. In his case, it would be offense with additional details for players to help them get familiar with what they need and people would be surprised by how much this is done how much of this process this game planning process is done during the during the off season so in january and february these are months where your your coaching staff your analysts are already going through not only a self scout of your own program but they're going through a the scouting process of going through Basically, all the stuff from your opponents and you're putting putting together preliminary game plan stuff early in the year before you're even getting to spring ball, all that stuff. You're already starting to plan some of what you're going to call some of what you're going to do going into the next year. And then when you get past spring ball, you're reevaluating, you know, obviously there's some more roster movement. There's different things that happen at that point. And during the summer, your analysts, your your. Your whole team, you are already grinding on material that you're going to put into preliminary game plan stuff before the season to have that stuff ready to go when it comes to game week. And then by the time you get to game week, this is your third or fourth time through what these teams do. You've already got preliminary stuff and now you're updating based on what those teams have done to that point in the season and one of the reasons having an army of experienced analysts helps is during the season let's say you've got Miami in the you know what game 10 or whatever it is or game game 9 uh where you've got a rivalry game against one of the better teams on your schedule you don't want to wait until then to do all of your game planning in a 2-day period getting ready for that game you want to have your analysts working on that as well as other things, over the course of the whole season. You're going to have a couple guys that they're just going to keep peeking in on Miami, keep updating different things, keep doing all that over the course of the season. And then when you get to that point in the season, you're, you're hitting the ground running with stuff that is already called up and saying, okay, well, we need to go and take a look at this. Such and such already called this up. That's the kind of thing that a well-run, well-organized team of analysts is doing for you. And that's the kind of thing that having a guy like Stockstill makes easier. So he's a guy, when you have a guy like that on your uh, on your support staff, you put that guy in charge of the bigger games in terms of, of the anal- analyst level game planning for that. And then when it comes to the staff... Now the staff can take all of those notes, all that stuff that's organized, some of the preliminary stuff, and then you put all that stuff together in that last couple of days. So that's the sort of thing that happens at this level. And it's why having these support staff things are these support staff hires are so important and having a guy like uh, like Stockstill on your staff helps. And also having a guy that, you know, can evaluate in terms of high school recruiting. He's a, he's going to be a first port of call to, you know, say, oh, you know, we're not you know, he's not really worth us all taking a look at, but these couple guys are. He you, you can trust those eyes a little bit more. And again, it allows you to focus more on the stuff that you really want to focus on in season, that sort of thing. All right. Getting to the last couple things here, because I gotta hit the road in a moment. Uh so this is from Preston Smith. This was about a month and a half ago, maybe. Uh, and I just didn't have a space to do it in the last uh, mailbag. So i been leaving that off. And now it's, it may be more suitable than ever to, uh, to talk through. So I'm going to go ahead and do this. With NIL and its impact, I would think it can be used to make up for, he says, a scholarship changing what a walk-on traditionally has been. Should roster requirements be changed in light of this? It's a great question, P- Preston. And... Um, I I don't know what you're talking about with NIL potentially being able to make up for a scholarship. But presuming that sort of thing actually happened. uh, Yeah, you could, in theory, have, you know, if you were, let's say, Texas or Texas A&M or, you know, one of those schools with with very, very deep pockets. You might have a scholarship limit of 85, but you might just make sure that you add the cost of a scholarship and, you know, all of the room and board stuff and all of that to a guy's to a walk-on, quote unquote, nil, and now you're up to 120 guys that are really effectively on scholarship. That could happen, yes, it could. And you might ask, should roster requirements be changed in light of that? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because it does seem like the well-heeled programs could gather more talent than ever. You know, in the 85 scholarship era, given that possibility. And I do think that as we start to head towards more restructuring, what we're going to see is more of a uh, an NFL style roster number requirement where you're going to see, you know, only this many guys can practice and be on the active roster. Only this many guys can be on the, you know, the game roster, these sorts of things. And you're going to start seeing essentially NFL style uh regulations have put in place simply because of the the capacity to collect that much talent and you know keep them on board with a retainer fee basically uh to mitigate the 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 scholarship limits yeah i do think they're going to have to have some roster requirement shifts and, you know, basically limit the number of players that, that are in practice and, and all of that. And it's, it's going to be, it's a different world and they're going to have to have different rules. And, and I think we're going to see, see that happen. So yes, very, uh, prescient for you to ask that question. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, also, also another thing that I should mention, uh, this is another question from like five, six weeks ago. This is from Joseph Reiter uh, who says longtime listener, A lot of smoke about private equity drew Weatherford related, no doubt. And Florida state spun like FSU will take a massive private equity investment to pay the exit fees or grant of rights out of the ACC. Wouldn't this money be better spent to prop up FSU's yearly revenue to compete with the power Two conferences. That is instead of dropping nine figures to leave the the ACC, why not drop 30 million a year to outcompete all the others in the ACC and do this quietly via NIL FSU would easily lap the ACC there maybe not massively lap Miami in spending, and essentially lock up 11 to 12 regular season wins per year in a team competitive for the playoffs. The private equity idea also uh, raises the question, how are the investors getting return on their investment? Would we trade merchandising dollars above above current expected amounts? Would we trade naming rights on the stadium, for instance? What would private equity investors get for their money that they could either cash in yearly or turn around and sell to another investor to cash out? Well, as it happens, uh, some of that information is now a little bit more public because of FOIA request that, that Andrew Baker and some others have, uh, have raised. So some of the redacted materials related to that have now been uh, made public of those, by the way, maybe the most interesting thing was that there was a line item in there talking about a potential change in, uh, revenue, yearly revenue for the 2026 season, I believe. And the number there was actually the uh, SEC's expected number rather than the Big Ten's expected number for that year. So that's worth kind of it's interesting at any rate that that in their kind of speculation of where they could be after the ACC uh, that was actually, and this is a little bit older document, but that was actually the SEC's number there uh in terms of you know factoring the possibility that they might be somewhere else. That's the number that they used. That might have been the most interesting thing from all of those uh all of those uh files. But in any case, um yeah, so a few things. One is the naming rights and some of those things are absolutely on the table. Uh the Merchandising and all of that. Uh, they they are planning on spinning some of that out to to do a better job of r- raising money uh, from those avenues than they have so far. Uh, and some of it, some of this private equity just basically boils down to uh, essentially loans They're It's loans from equity where they're expecting a specific rate of return that's going to come out of FSU's annual revenue once they get to that point. And that's really where that goes they, you know, FSU did, I think, try to look into what it would be to just use equity to outcompete. And ultimately that was just not a winning proposition because equity just didn't see getting their, their money's worth out of that. So it's not the worst idea, but you've got to find somebody who actually wants to do that. And I don't think they've been able to do that. So, uh, yeah, they're the, the basic idea is that this is more or less a loan that equity, that private equity would look look at as a reliable way to get a specific rate of return that's above what they could get doing other things with it. And it's a pretty safe thing. So as a part of that portfolio, it works out pretty well for them. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how much, you know, has to go where. But, you know, a lot of this would end up going to facilities and other things and, you know, not not to mention the possibility of having to pay, you know, some exit stuff and all of that. So yeah, really good question. Something we'll, we'll circle back to and revisit a little bit down the line. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so that raises the the final thing I'm going to talk about here, though. I will mention one other question that I won't address uh, fully on this episode, because I'm going to do it very soon in another episode. Uh, and that is, uh, the other thing that's happened since then is the ACC and F- FSU have both, uh, They've revised their filings and responded to one of those cases in Florida and North Carolina, including each of them making motions for the other's case to be dismissed. We'll cover this more in a future episode because I'm going to have a guest come on. I've been kind of waiting uh, to have that guest come on uh, for these updates to happen so that we can get a good walkthrough on that. A few points just briefly before I go. Uh, One is. Florida State significantly beefed up its case against the ACC with a lot more information about self-dealing from John Swafford, all the Raycom stuff. What I found funny about that is that a lot of the material that, uh, that, that they used in that and some of the arguments that they made were things that had been going back and forth on Twitter. You know, they've been passing through my timeline on Twitter a good bit just before and after the initial FSU filing. This was some stuff that some of us on Twitter were saying, oh, that's kind of surprising they didn't go here. Uh, and then they would actually cite, they cited some of the, the same sources that those Twitter discussions uncovered. Uh, so, you know, credit to FSU fans and the, and the discourse on social media on this stuff. I do know for a fact that some of the lawyers in, involved on this sort of stuff, uh, are paying attention to social media, all of that. And, you know, some of the stuff that I posted on Twitter to this end, I mean, this goes all the way back to the old null digest message boards. Over a decade ago back when I ran the scout.com site noldigest.com, before that was acquired by 24/ 7 uh, and you know kudos to guys over there who were really on top of this uh, that from the very beginning I mean going back to 20 you know 2010 2011 where it was like ah oh, this is a bad idea from you know to sign on to this with the ACC is you know this whole Raycom thing is a poison pill some of these guys were right on top of that uh, granite State Knoll is a guy that I remember in particular was right about a whole lot about of where this wound up going in terms of the ACC screwing itself uh, the Swafford self-dealing a lot of that stuff some of that stuff honestly I wrote off a little bit at the time and I was wrong and he was right I mean kudos to that guy uh, wherever he is now um and there were more there were others on the old null Di- digest platform I just remember on, on that message board I just, I just remember that particular name uh because <laughs> the, probably the most obsessed with the the real, real uh conference realignment stuff of anybody but uh and i will say he was wrong about the big 12 as a safe haven as a better option than the acc it turns out that was even worse but uh and and you know in any case the acc uh it it went down basically as he and lots of others said it would and all of their efforts to collect all of this information over those years that stuff reemerged on social media in the, in, in all this case stuff. So, you know, it remains to be seen whether it actually will wind up helping with the, with the actual legal decision, but find it interesting. Nonetheless, uh, <laughs> these are the, this is a strange world where, you know, social media message boards and all that actually do end up having impact once in a while. So, uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, also interesting that, uh, FSU is arguing that the ACC suit Uh, which is obviously a play for venue, should be thrown out precisely because the ACC once again violated its own bylaws by filing the suit without a vote of membership to begin with, which is required in ACC bylaws. So a, a good portion of what FSU is arguing in their case is basically that the ACC consistently and repeatedly has violated their own bylaws in multiple ways, which they're arguing invalidates a lot of the agreements and you know should give them an out, but we'll see what the courts think, like I said, have more to talk about with our with our guests here in the near future, and then uh, we'll we'll get to that but lots lots more to talk about, but I'm going to go ahead and wrap here. Thanks as always to everybody for listening. This has been unconquered with Doc Staples. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five star rating over at Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen to podcasts, post and repost episodes on social media. And tell a friend. And if you haven't left a review in a while, do it again. It really does help the visibility of the podcast. Before we go, I'd also like to thank my advertising partners once more. That's EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage, serving Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky. You can also stop by the Unconquered shop at unconqueredpodcast.com, where you can buy stickers, pins, magnets, t-shirts, and other swag. And thanks also to all those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast. I am especially grateful to those above the dynasty level. That is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Neil Cook, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Dave Blair, Hector Cartagena... Jack Horton, Jimmy Van, Jonathan Kennedy, Keith Cheney, Lee Caswell, Tyler Kashishke, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. You all are far more generous than I deserve. I'm really grateful. Thanks to you all. This has been Unconquered with Doc Staples. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. I made this.